Episode 80 of No Guitar Is Safe featuring electric guitar virtuoso Emil Wurstler is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. No Guitar Is Safe. Hey, what's up everybody? I don't know about you, but I will just never, ever get tired of that moment when you hand somebody a live guitar cable and they plug in their guitar and just BAM! You know, it's instantaneous. You're just hearing some badass stuff coming out of their fingers. It's instantaneous. You're like, this is a great guitar player. You don't need more than a half a second to identify a great guitar player. And I love that about Emil Wurstler who you have been listening to already. We'll get into all that stuff. Emil, badass, virtuoso, Paul Reed Smith player coming at you from Nashville. Well, that's where he's based these days. By way of Atlanta, Paul Reed Smith guitars and Paul Reed Smith, the dude himself, first noticed Emil, gosh, 10 or 11 years ago. He was playing a solid body and a hollow body and just making a beautiful racket on it with heavy acts such as Doth and Chimera. Since then, he's been one of their great clinicians and and endorsees, and he's worked alongside other great PRS players, such as Mike Scott, super funky Mike Scott, who's been on this podcast. You know him, the right-hand man for Prince, Justin Timberlake, and all that stuff. And now Emil has a new record, a new album. It's called Verloriner. the name of the album and the artist it's a solo record it's super cinematic sounding don't you think yes Emil's branching out in all these cool directions just a monster player so I can't wait to hang out with him. Emil was in Los Angeles for the amp show. Lonnie Spector out here puts out this great amp show in a hotel once a year. They take over the hotel for the weekend. Imagine a bunch of guitar players taking over three stories of this entire hotel and the lobby and everything full of guitar gear. Everyone's making a racket. No noise restrictions. It's beautiful chaos. And Emil was out there. For that, straight representing, probably demoing some Paul Reed Smith amps and guitars, such as you might hear on his new album. I wish I could have attended, but I was all the way over in Massachusetts for a gig, so I flew home on a Monday all across the country from Boston and pretty much went straight to Josh Smith's studio where we met up with Emil and this interview happened. Thank you so much, Josh Smith. Another great guitar player. You guys know him from episode 18. Phenomenal guitarist with a new album out himself. He has a new album out called Burn to Grow, which is doing very well on various billboard charts. I think he was like number two behind Joe Bonamassa on the blues chart. Way to go, Josh. Check that out. Burn to Grow. Anyway, his studio is called Flat Five Studios. We're going to hang out over there with Emil Wurzler. Emil's going to plug into Josh's Morgan head with a little reverb. I'm plugged into a cool-ass little tweed combo that we'll talk about for a second, a Harvard. You can also find Emil on jamplay.com. He's one of the instructors there. I just hope that you all are staying super inspired, keeping the guitar alive in your hands till you're all at least 105. You know what I'm talking about. Thanks to Zoom for the recorders. We're going to head over to Josh's, where you find Emil and myself starting off on a little blues progression in A. Maybe starting off on the five chord, if I remember correctly. Hope you enjoy this. I sure enjoyed hanging out with Emil. And again, thanks to Josh Smith for the awesome studio hookup. All right, y'all. Enjoy. This is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. And please tell a friend about No Guitar Is Safe.
Okay, one, two, a one, two, three, four. got this really warm tone happening right there running through the uh the morgan yeah i like it josh smith's saving morgan. the day yeah it's josh smith's saving the day yeah <laughs> over here at flat five studios which is what he calls the studios here in good day greater los angeles area mm-hmm. yeah man he came through thank you josh he's over there he can't hear us through the double glass but we're uh, waving he's at a, him. he's over there scrolling Thanks, yeah, he's josh. scrolling he's scrolling <laughs> he's like <laughs> and so yeah you got this morgan amp and uh, the PRS J15. Yeah, yeah. This is the one. This has been the one for uh, for quite a, quite a minute here, you know. But the, the the curse of the tremolo, well, at least the way that I wield the tremolo, is you may hear some buzzing out there in podcast land on the D string because I've sawed into my nut. It's it's there. Just never it's say a, sawed into my nut again. Yeah, that's pretty. That sounds pretty pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess now I didn't notice until you just played that a second ago. I heard that little buzz, but yeah, it's it's actually I just tell people that it's there. I I want it to be there. You know, yeah, man, a little sitar. Meanwhile, Josh hooked me up with this little Harvard amp, little fifteen water Steve Cropper amp. I've got a. I want a little guy like that, like um. I'm fascinated with the the amps like that, and you know the ones that like the Gypsy Jazz guys use, like the old uh, Django's. I think that became a uh, the little Epiphone guys, where the the tubes and all the stuff are like in the bottom of the amp, yeah. and it's like like a like a the the back is completely open. I got to get something like that, you know. You should, man. You deserve it with your Django chops here. Yeah, <laughs> I try. I try with the Django chops, but you know, um, I, I learned not too long ago that uh, it's kind of hard to do them with four fingers. It's it's a very strange style, man. You gotta take one, man. You gotta do it. You gotta f- just, just lop a couple f- off. Yeah, fuse the fingers. <laughs> yeah. God bless Django. You know what he did with <laughs> that hand. Man, you talk about a talk about a very ferocious player, man. Like it just, it's a, it's a bizarre and that that whole style that yeah. that kind of you know. There's yeah. a lot of guys out there. Like what's that guy's name? You got a, uh, of course you got Borelli. Yeah, you got yeah. uh, Rosenberg's not around anymore, but his uncle Stockolo is. But then what's that guy? Jos- uh, J- Josco Stefan, I think that's how you say. It. There's yeah. a whole. There's a whole world of them, and they're all horrifying. It's just like, could you guys yeah. give us a chance? Could you stop that? Yeah, <laughs> just, quit, they are so chance. terrifying. <laughs> they are, yeah. Interesting, interesting way of playing, and I think that what what I kind of took away from it, and the reason um, that I think I really got into it was they sort of seem to play very horizontally, and it's almost like you know if you learn like a like a very kind of like say you go to like a school yeah. for music in the states you're going to learn like a very kind of like positional playing don't play with shapes learn the notes and of course that's stuff that we all know but sometimes we forget that that there's some guys that have chops and they could use that maybe if it's uh if you could take like say we were just playing a 145 and you could and just play a regular arpeggio sometimes if you decorate and don't play the modes you can take that yeah. same idea 
and take it to the floor, yeah. and then you could decorate accordingly. And that's kind of what Django. That's what he would do. Yeah, yeah. And then you have like basically ideas per chord, but that presents the that presents the challenge of well, what if somebody blows the chord change? Then what do you do? You're kind of just you need to just float around. I think in neutral land until you find out what's coming next. You know. Yeah. What are some of the other things that you've sort of taken away from studying that sort of horizontal? style well i think the one thing i took away from it is if you can all the stuff that they do is so altered sounding and so diminished that i tend to kind of think of it as like you're playing off all the all the wrong notes so it's almost like when you do things like the enclosure ideas that kind of work like for example you know i can take uh for the listeners out there i can take a7 arpeggio just one three five flat seven one three five all that the board i can go a half step below it a half step above it and then the note on every note yeah things like that so you can come up with some pretty wacky stuff like uh and and what i took away from it is that mentality there's a lot of times on the guitar where you have like two notes here one note here two notes that really kind of can take your picking hand and throw it for a loop so a lot of times you can decorate that and straighten it out like for example this is a regular diminished arpeggio uh a la ingbe momstein starting on the g string on the fourth fret that thing right right but that two notes here one here two here that'll throw you so what you can do is you can just look at the next note to kind of put two notes on the b string so you can come up with an idea like this i'm literally adding an e on the fifth fret so then you have Adding some butter to the some the a little line. bit of butter, yeah, yeah. I, I saw you doing a cool jam play lesson, and they do such yeah. cool lessons with their three camera angle and the one over your shoulder. Yeah, it's kind of invasive, but in a cool way. You're 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 totally right. Some when when the, when people ask the question, like I see your right hand doing this, you're like I had no idea my right hand actually does that because they have the camera. It's so you know you get to see an angle you've never seen before. Like so apparently I rest yeah. my pinky in a weird place. You know yeah, yeah. I definitely float. It's like I'm busted. It's like yeah I float my or I don't float. I anchor sometimes you and know? you were doing you were doing like you you're talking about adding some butter if you will that's the yeah. word, word i just threw out there a couple seconds ago but good little work. slides of course oh. now i now have no amp yeah so then you can maximize your little it's kind of a django-y thing i guess it, it is and you know i think um when, when i when i think about the guitar i try to think of like think about how drummer you know drummer's rudiment like right right left right right left for a triplet or or vice versa um I tend to think a lot like, you know, a hammer on a pull off and a slide is kind of like it accounts for rhythm with your left hand. So when I kind of realized that, I went, you know what? A hammer on a pull off or a slide is going to give my right hand a second to correct itself or avoid somewhere that it doesn't want to go. Because, you know, the idea is like a propeller. You don't want to think, you just want it to go. But at the same time, you got you to feel it. So a lot of times, um, so there's, there's, a, there's a couple of really cool ideas uh, that come to mind. When you hear this on a gypsy jazz record, you know, I'm doing that with three fingers. Right. You know, and you would think that's what's going on. But really, he would do it. I'm using this a two-finger yeah. lick. So that's why that's where they get stuff so you're like... you're sliding down to the lowest note and yeah. then you're sliding back up. Yeah, that's right, right. And, and so you can create... It just, it just looks like it feels better to play. It looks like more fun when you look do that way. It looks like it's more you're, you're, satisfying. You're creating more motion, that's for sure, yeah. but it's almost like that... Uh, it's almost like that's what's going to really kind of give you that resistance to to really play harder and really, you know, sometimes when you play a guitar that's too easy to play, you just you're just prone for more mistakes, you know. But but when you play with something that's a little harder to play, you have to really fight it and mean what you're trying to do to get it out. Yeah, that's you know, of, that's how I feel with this amp right here. Yeah, you sound great on it, dude. <laughs> well, oh, thanks. But you know, just we got a demo of because I think Josh was showing us before we turn on the mic that it really you can you turn it up and it just starts bluesing out. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's like the neck pickup on this PRS 408, which I've been playing lately. Yeah, that's killer. Anyway, that, that amp has a, a wide range of stuff. So, yeah, and, and there's no verb or nothing. So, yeah, you're fighting for every Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Dude, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a cool sound. It, may, it almost makes me want to... Um, it almost makes me want to do like a get an amp like that and do a dry wet thing with a really old you know the re, the old reverb that kind of almost has drive in it you know yeah yeah oh man yeah i've heard hollywood fats get some incredible tones i think 
just like i don't know run maybe a separate fender reverb into an amp and the drive is all mixed it's all like a soup and it comes See, out so that, that's that speaking of, speaking of that like yeah. i've got some amps that have uh, for some reason i just like lately it's been reverb that's been my that's been what i've sort of just been keeping an eye on not really as much pedals maybe some pedals but more of the old reverb units just the standalone fender ones yeah. and i and i'm like you know when you play a fender amp there's a few of the models that the reverb sort of just like you said it bleeds into the rest of the amp and it just makes it into a soup and it almost acts as like an overdrive and to me that's really awesome oh, yeah it's great and it ducks too like it kind of you like over right. you're yeah <laughs> it's like it's like you get the attack and there's like a, or or you don't you get a little less attack in it and it uh that's 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 what i like about reamping is if you uh when you can really find that sweet spot where it creates that stew that you were talking about, you know, kind of acts as an overdrive. Really cool stuff. Now, can I ask you, could we, let's plug that sucker into this high gain situation. Yeah. yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I also have this Boss amp here, you know, Boss Katana. Uh-huh. Maybe we can hear you rock out for a second. Yeah. See what that pickup sounds like. Oh, yeah, these are, yeah, these are low turns. You ever play with these before? Oh, you're telling me about Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah these, are, uh, these are slowly replace, replacing every pickup. Um, and every guitar, 5815 low turns. Very, very awesome. <laughs> I can adjust this for a second. For a lot yeah. Of yes, uh. Right. the same stuff I was playing with uh, without the gain right oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so if you got Of course, of yeah. course the, the, the next moved a little bit in travel. You can probably hear a little bit of buzz. But yeah, it's really the same. It's really, it's really the same kind of thing that I'll do with, like, with, um, without overdrive, without gain, you know. But the thing that I've realized about gain... Right, it's a, it's, it. it's it it's the I think it's a division of notes that I like. Like I've I've like you know with this much stuff, it's it's it's. Like that, and that's me holding on to the bar. But a lot of the yeah. stuff, I think it's like, it's really down to muting. Like if you've if you've ever heard a guy that plays like flat ones that plays plays jazz, if you hand him a guitar with, with dirt, they usually kind of sound bad because they don't really mute the strings. The same way that yeah. I probably sound bad when I play with with no reverb and you know with with flat wound strings playing jazz stuff, you know. Uh, but I think a lot of it, um, since I walk around the house constantly and like during the day, usually if I'm playing, I just don't play even plugged in. That's the other you know advantage of having yeah. a hollow body, but. I think that um, what r reminds me when I play with volume and gain is that whoa, I forgot I have to like grab the guitar in a way that the strings are muted, you know? Because sometimes it's not what you're avoiding; right. it's what you're playing through, you know? Like it was kind of like when you when yeah. somebody first starts playing, they're sort of trying to play. They play a power chord like a D. They're trying to skip the E string, where it's like no, play yeah. through it, just mute it, you know? You know? But yeah, that's that's the that's the yeah. sound of. Um, Yeah, that's 
That's huh. that's it's, it's weird. Juicy. It's a weird thing. Yeah, it's juicy. It's juicy. Yeah. You really, I love it when people use the bar the way you do. Like it's just meaty, and you're just digging in with the bar. Like you're like kind of like you're bending like a blues bend, but you're using the bar. Well, also, you know, I if you think about it, whoa, no, I'm whoa, loud. That's awesome. <laughs> sounds good. That sounds great. If you, yeah, so the way that you're doing it right there, notice how like you know how you have a non-floating bar. That sounds yeah. so Jeff Becky. Well, this, is, this is floating. But yeah, yeah. And, I, and I float mine too. But when you have a non-floating bar, you're dipping down. So like yeah. to me. I always kind of saw it as like, I don't want anybody to know on the records that I'm like not using my left hand when I've been in a whole step. So I'm going to pull up on the bar to do vibrato or I'm going to, I used to play my bar back around this way because then you're, you're bending up like you are with the left hand vibrato. So it's, so if you use your left hand vibrato and you bend up on the bar or use the entire guitar more, then it sounds more like real true hand vibrato. And it's not like, you know, an annoying Mm. guy named Emil using a tremolo (laughs) bar, you know, like, (laughs) well, you pass the test for me, which is you're able to totally play while holding the bar. Like I see so many videos. I'm not trying to be like an old guy here looking at young players who they're playing the jam and then they reach over, grab the bar and (laughs) and then the bar swings down. Yeah. And then they reach over five minutes later and, yeah and you can just it's kind of predictable but like for you it's an extension of your hand it's more like a voice i think and that that, a lot of that comes from well two guys jeff beck who i grew up my dad was like you know real g's listen to jeff beck he's like eric Clapton's good but you know real (laughs) dudes listen to jeff everybody knows you know or better yeah i remember one time he's like man jeff beck's like a big mystery he doesn't even do press, man. That's what my dad told me when I was like 12. And I was like, whoa. So your dad was a guitar player? Is a guitar no, player? No, he's a pianist. He was a pianist. And, and um, he, he you know, he played a lot in yeah. bands and stuff. And he, I mean, I grew up in a real, um, I wouldn't, I mean, definitely musical and artistically oriented family. Like, uh, you know, everybody in the family was obsessed with their thing. Like my mom was, she played a few instruments. She she was into art. Um, my dad was a pianist. He also was into, I mean, he showed me my Vishnu when I was like 14, 13. And I was like, damn, like, this is crazy. And then um, my brother played drums, you know, and uh, so it was interesting because I was always surrounded by it. And um, luckily, they were really supportive when I was really young, but they also weren't weren't dumb about it. They were like when it was time to graduate high school. I mean, I was was kind of a I was a pretty obsessed kid. I I didn't even get a driver's license till later because I didn't care. But then when when I come on. What driver's license? Yeah. I, mean, I think I was like almost seventeen. You know, most kids are oh, like yeah. they're fifteen. They got their permit. <laughs> I, I like I did say twenty-seven. Yeah, I didn't get my driver's license till last year, <laughs> and then it got taken away. No, uh, it you know I. But then I found out I can work at the music store, the cool music store, and be around guitars all day. And I was like, okay, all right, well, okay, I'll I'll drive now. And um, but when I decided that I was gonna go all chips in with music, they were yeah. like, you do know that this is damn near impossible. We got your back, but we wanna hear you say that you know and understand that this is damn near impossible. And I was like, yeah, I know. I and they love were the like, different ways parents handle that. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a different approach. That's a good approach. Like, yeah. just for the record, you know what you're getting into. Yeah, do you know what you're getting yourself into? I'm like, well, yeah. I haven't figured the whole life thing out yet, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, that yeah, I think I... And, you know, because of that, um, my, my goals as a musician were to... Um, you know, my goal as a musician was the same since I was younger, which was, like, first and foremost, be able to actually, like, work with the instrument in my hand. Um, you got to say yes to some stuff in the beginning that you maybe regret later or you may say yes to some stuff that's not the coolest but it's kind of part of your journey but then um you know i know a lot of guys that their goal was just sort of like you know i want i want the bus i want the marquee value i want all this i'm like well to me it was kind of like if if i get that that's cool but i'm not depending on that i'm going to just like take whatever path i can find so teaching for me has been it's something i don't even really advertise or post about it's all word of mouth and it's been um it's been really good to me. I've got a lot of students that are just casual. Like sometimes they're once a, a year, sometimes they're every week. I've got quite a few of them that go to Berkeley and MI and, and stuff like that, you know? And, um, and it's, it's kind of kept me, it keeps my fingers going. It keeps me busy. It is, it can be exhausting when you're, when you're kind of serving everybody else. And you know, by the time you do get to serve yourself, you're like, ah, that's the last thing I want to see is a damn guitar in my <laughs> face, you know? Yeah. But I think that's kind of what, um, Lucky, luckily for me, because I never had a big break, I always had to hustle, so I never really fall back too far. Because you know, you think about it, you're only as big as if you're in a band for 20 years. It's kind of scary because one day you wake up, if somebody doesn't want to do it anymore, that's integral. Well, I better find a new job, a new career. And if you got kids, that's scary, you know. So 
for me, I felt like I kind of picked up on that early. And I also learned a lot from the people around me where I'm like, when you finally meet somebody you've been listening to and you kind of see like, what's up? You're like, oh man, um, well, if he's like that, then I'm going to make sure I do the right things and try to like maybe surpass that a little bit because wow, if that's as good as it gets. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure I really want to do this, but you know, I've had a lot of really cool, like, I guess you can call them mentors. Um, I mean, back to Mike Scott, like having a guy like Mike Scott around that has just been, he's an alien. I haven't having a guy like him around that's still doing it and still excited about it. And I mean, you know, you see him on the suit, you see him on the Super Bowl. you know, yeah, like yeah, it's sure. just killing it. It's like, Having a guy like that that's still got the soul. Yeah, Yeah, Justin, yeah. And he's still, he's not jaded. He's still got this, like, this soul to him where you want to be, you want to play with him because he makes you play better, you know, when you're around him. And that's, that's kind of what I'm into now because, I mean, we can all get kind of jaded sometimes, but when you get around somebody who's, who's just not at all and that just loves to play, it takes you back to being like, you know, this is what it's all about, you know? Exactly, man. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you with that for sure. Now you are such an anomaly because you've done it like right now, who would guess that you've played so much brutal metal in your <laughs> life too? And then you have this new album, which has just been really tripping me out. I love it. It's so, ah, man, it's like a psychedelic vision kind of going through these different worlds on every song. And some of them scare me a little bit. Really? Well, yeah. Listen to the beginning of Devil in the Room. These sound effects, man. It's like, it starts off, like, what's going to happen? Yeah. I think I think I'm just really I think I'm just really attracted to sad music, you know. Like, um, if I think about movies, and, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the I guess the the daydreaming before that record came to be was I wanted to sound like like a really epic movie score. And the the names of the tunes are kind of sort of like naming a movie scene, you know, stained yeah. glass, sex scene, gothic architecture, things like that. I think that even when I was younger and I go to the movies, like if I saw like a sad, you know, movies, imagine that, that do those yeah. exist anymore? I, you see a, you see yeah. a really sad, well done movie where maybe, or maybe it's a good movie with just a sad ending that really kind of crushes you a little bit. I just remember feeling kind of like I couldn't shake it off for a couple of days and I really wanted to include that sort of vibe in the music. And, I, and that's kind of what I was really going for to the point of where I'd, I would eliminate things that, that sort of deterred me from achieving that. like. There's a few, like, for example, this is really random, but I tried to have as few crash symbols on the one as possible for this record. Interesting. Because, you know, a lot of times, if you have a crash symbol, if it's a rock band, it's totally fine, but if you have a crash symbol every measure, that does a lot of things to the mix. It, it sort of it sort of takes away the lingering, you know, the, the lingering yeah. sort of, like, statement you're making where you're, like, not letting up. It's kind of like Boogaloo music. Or, yeah. or James Brown or Prince, where, you know, Mike Scott was even talking about it on the podcast he did with you, where they would pick one thing with Go-Go or Boogaloo and it would stay there and you don't yeah. move until the audience starts getting down and you're yeah. sort of inflicting the listener with, with what you're trying to do and I think that there's a lot of with rock and roll and metal and the stuff I've done in the past it's just, just the idea of here's here's a riff here's a counter riff here's a bigger riff here's an even bigger one here's an even bigger one here's the biggest one ever you know I just get bigger and bigger and, bigger. and I wanted to do, to do things like instead of a drum fill a measure before the B section how about just take all the drums out and have a phrase there and then have it all come back in. Just small things, taking away instead of adding to. And you have so many different guitar sounds on each song. And Well, you know, that's the thing is that, that it kind of naturally happened that way because that record was pieced together over a long amount of time just because I was so busy yeah. with Chimera at the time when I was in that band and, and my regular kind of schedule with what I normally do. It turns out that you know, um, there's there's some stuff that came off of a microcube that made it on the record because I couldn't outdo the performance. So I it, it it wound up kind of really taking on its own. But there there were some pedals though that were like what I consider the Verlorner pedals because you were asking about pedals earlier, and uh, this is the first time that I actually kind of like relied on pedals, namely TC Electronics stuff. No, not TC. I'm sorry, 
wrong company, Electro Harmonics, although I do love the TC Electronics stuff. But the Electro Harmonics Super Ego, a lot of people are like, man, what kind of synth is that? I'm like, oh, that's a guitar through a Super Ego. What's an example of that that I could play right um, now? For oh, the listeners. Oh, for the listeners, okay. The Super Ego, if you hear, uh, if you listen to Black Licorice, you'll hear these notes. Like just the regular notes when the when the song kicks in, you'll hear those. That's it's just really long notes. It sounds like a like a lower end of a synth. That's yeah. the guitar and that's quadded super ego notes. Where I would just basically take the root notes of whatever chord I composed, and uh, and it just act like the guitar is a synth. But then I would also use a wah pedal um, in front of it to to kind of have yeah. an EQ sweep. Let's see. After in the chain was um, a the old school whammy pedal, just turned down an octave with no uh, with no natural tone in it, just just the octave lower, and it makes this really kind of grimy sort of sound. And I actually got so obsessed with that sound that when I broke both of my whammy pedals, which always happens because they have moving parts, then I, I went and bought a couple of um, Digitech makes that same thing just in a regular stomp box now, which is really cool. So. Yeah. Now tell me about the fuzz tone that comes Ooh. in pretty early on mm-hmm. Devil in the Room. And I hear, think maybe I hear it in different places too. It's there. It's there. That is a WMD Geiger counter, the little guy. That's uh, It's the one, the civilian issue, I think it's called. It's the little yellow pedal. And it is very wild. I've never really seen anybody use it yet. Like really dive in um fuzz is a new thing for me but i I like the way a guy like jack white uses it i just think it's the most awesome thing ever it's just so wild sounding and um it's interesting pedal because you have all these different modes of bit crushed and fuzzed out tones but then if you hit the actual uh like the rotary switch if you actually tap it it becomes even more lo-fi so and it becomes ugly so what we would do um the guy that helped me do a lot of finishing the record is a guy named Alistair Sims. He's uh, the engineer f- uh, live front of house and uh, like co-produces a lot of stuff with a band called Nikki's Wives. And he did a lot of the uh, a lot a lot of other bands. He's definitely a veteran, but he did. I th- I, I want to say it was sort of a three days grace. He did he helped with the three days grace stuff, I believe. And he talked about layering a lot of tones to equal one. And so we took that pedal, and we'd have six or so tones going some way ugly and then some where you can actually distinguish the notes and then we would just kind of stack that and create a tone out of that so but that particular uh intro to devil in the room that is just like one setting and if you want to see that setting you can find my instagram it's like it's sitting right there we had to take a photo because you can't save your settings (laughs) (laughs) you know so there you have it yeah yeah you get into some serious glitchy kind of like cool ass like bit crushed stuff even on the drums like one song just ends and just Blank. Which song is it that just ends where the drums just get squashed into fucking bare molecules? I, I, I think that's that sex scene. I think that the the overall like the way that it just happened with this record was I mean I, I knew I knew what I wanted it to be after a couple of songs it took me forever to figure out how to make this sound of this band that was in my mind Verlorner but once I got about two or three in then I was I was like shooting just shooting out complete tunes um, but what would happen is um, because I would travel from like Canada at the time to Atlanta and in all kinds of different studios I would just kind of work wherever I could. Um, there was a bit of, well, there goes the protocol. You know, there, th- that's, there's a bit of, well, I just blew the protocol to making a record as I know making a record, which is sitting in the same place, birthing it, you know, doing it, finishing it, maybe sending it off somewhere else to get it mixed. But for the most part, here I am piecing it together. So instead of like fighting that, I embraced it and decided, you know, if I don't have a, if I have a part that I don't like, because now I'm so far away from my drummers, because there's a different drummer on every song. 
um, and I don't really want to redo stuff, let me just go home and tinker on this B section that I'm not convinced with and see what I can do with it. And what that wound up becoming was I bit crushed the hell out of it to where it was almost just a throbbing pulse of noise. And then I would, I would just take and program a beat on top of it. You know what I mean? Like to where the drums are still there driving it, but then you have something that is pushing it in the mix. And then there's the, the crash cymbal thing. A lot of time was taken taking the crash cymbals out, just taking them out completely. You know, DeAnthony Park showed up with a keyboard and just used the house drum kit in the studio and with no crash cymbals at all. And I was like, and there's a couple of other drummers, they snuck a crash cymbal on there and I was like, oh, but it sounded good. So, I, you know, yeah. so I kept it. Yeah, but well, but that's... Slide. Yeah, so that that's that's the that's the story with just kind of how um, the, the that sex scene I think with the bit crust drums, and uh, and of course the bass is um, it's actually Jimmy Herring's bass, it's Kevin Scott Wayne Crantz's bassist, and the, he he's kind of the king of taking things down an octave with the OC two and putting a very bizarre fuzz on it to where he's playing up here, but it's back down there glitching out and it just has a really unique sound to it and you got all these found sounds or like at the end of black liquor it sounds like garbage can or something it's those are uh those are my shoes in the dryer I actually have a habit now because of this record of recording things that are around me. If I hear, like, I was walking by, I think there was like a public restroom and I heard there was like a utility closet with this really ridiculous throbbing sound coming out of it, like a water heater problem. And I just was like, I gotta get that. So I, I you know, there I am sitting, sitting there recording this <laughs> by the by the bathroom. Like people are looking at me like I'm insane. Yeah. Jam. It's just yeah. like that video of those guys jamming to the tractor yeah. in like yeah. Russia or something. Take it yeah the engine just sounds like a little fast shuffle swing beat right right (laughs) you know the stained glass intro though on that song is really hypnotic um thanks let's listen to a little bit of that yeah So on the topic of stained glass, um, these chords represent like an entire sort of universe of what I'm trying to convey, and I can write a whole song in one sitting on the couch. So it's you got D minor, you have B diminish, you have this like inversion of you could consider this like a first inversion kind of of G minor seven, and then you have like an A seven, but I'm actually taking and I'm I'm doing a little bit of a different voice lead to have some. So that's one of the main riffs. Now that that right there, I specifically remember starting with the bass line, like a Portis head kind of real moody. And then I would kind of fill in the black the, the gaps later, but then coming from more of a gypsy jazz world, I'm gonna go down to that G minor like a minor blues. And then that's when it drops. And then you have and then this becomes a tag. Right? So, what the inch back to the intro, the intro is literally an arpeggiation. Oh, let's see. That's it. That's it. It's something like that. Like I have to really relearn it to go play it live, but I'm literally just soloing through those changes in a more uh, elaborate way. And I knew I wanted to start. It's going to be nerve wracking to do it live, but if you could imagine a person like a like a, a guy like Django, like those a lot of the gypsy jazz guys would just start out a song with a nice little solo piece intro, and I kind of wanted to bring that back because I haven't really heard that done in such a long time. You know, free freely, no no click. It was done. Um, with no click and it was just sort of like kind of floating about and then of course um, the cellos and stuff that kind of made it tough to put those in there because there was no grid but then once the song comes in of course then and the whole record is one tempo all the way through intentionally every song I mean they're they're all ballads they're all like medium tempo ballads and 
every one of them is like 130 or 140. It's like, I just really simplified. It was like, you know what? No tempo mapping, screw it. And sometimes you do half time or something. Right, right, yeah. It's 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 subdivided, but it's pretty much just one BPM all the way through. And what are some of those art, you know, the fast alternating picking kind of stuff you're doing at the top of stained glass? Okay, so so a lot, a lot of the uh, man, I don't even really remember how to play that, but I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a taste of sort of what something similar. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, really, what I'm doing there is. Um, People ask what I work on. What is the be all end all? I work on playing changes pretty much. And I think that a lot of what you hear, there's one, that's one that's actually in there. That right there is literally, I'm going up A7 arpeggio. Then I'm going up to that tritone sub E flat seven. Doing that little thing we talked about earlier, a half step above, a half step below, and then the root right there. So really a lot of the stuff that I do is it's straight up from the gypsy jazz handbook, which is if there was one, it would be like diminished off the major third. So here's what that sounds like when you have an a seven, like a regular blues, you play, that's what it sounds like. And really what that is chord or arpeggio or scale, um, it's, it's, it's basically a dominant arpeggio without the root. Instead, there's a flat nine and that's my favorite. Do you hear? That's the sound of, of Verlorner pretty much as a dominant flat nine resolving to. So what you're hearing in the solo department, aside from chromaticism and, and decoration, they call it, um, decorating right notes with wrong notes, um, what you're really hearing is outlining the chords pretty straightforward, mainly dominant. And uh, the substitutions, the most tense that it gets sometimes can be a tritone sub, but for the most part, I've as painful as it was, I would keep the ugliness of a diminished off the like those and, and you know what those are pretty much Jimmy Herring that that's Jimmy is kind of the and to me like he's kind of the guy for all that that kind of opened up that gateway for people to go like what in the world is that and how how is it that beautiful like what what is he doing and those kinds of licks are and believe it or not, they, they blend really well um, with Johnny B. Good. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you do it with that conviction and then you use the blues stuff to resolve, you get a real kind of um, interesting combination of, of, uh, of, of tension and release instead of, you know, just regular minor or regular major. So I mean, all, all that is like decorating, just a, a dominant, a dominant chord, like a cowboy chord. I'm feeling that. You're a wonderful <laughs> alternating picker too. Uh, I don't know where you uh, did. You have certain exercises that you did, or like oh, to we develop could it? definitely talk about that. Yeah, yes. believe it or not, I was a legato guy for years, like like many youngsters are starting out, where the the appeal of of that smooth sound, and of course, you know, you got to throw Eddie, you got to throw Eddie out there because he's he's the the greatest of all time. I just totally saw the the goat here on this JS40 amp. It's called the goat. I'm like, yeah, the greatest of all time. <laughs> oh, you yeah. think you think of Eddie, you think of Holdsworth, and yeah. you think of that smooth. You know, of course, Eddie had Eddie was a really complete player. I mean, the, all these guys are complete players, but Eddie really had that percussiveness and that that low end thing that hits you in the chest. That was kind of. But he also had that beautiful legato sound with the tapping. You know, and he's one of those guys where I want to hear that he's tapping. A lot of the guys that tap for the sake of tapping. I don't really want to hear that from them. I want to hear that from Eddie because, you know, he wrote the book on it. But then Holsworth is a guy that can, I call it concealing your technique where you don't really know what he's doing. Like I saw him do this one time. I saw him do like, uh, like, like, was it like, 
He's like literally like doing this weird like thing. He's like he's like yeah. he was chicken picking Holdsworth. I mean, I saw it. I'm like, is he doing that? He's doing that. Like the thing the thing about Legato though is for me. Um, I used to do like the idea of doing the idea of doing like a the idea of doing like a legato like a minor seven something like that like it took me so long to warm up and it was still like you it, it, unless you're playing at a fast speed you you may or may not nail it. unless you're cramming those notes you may or may not nail it but i met a guy named carter errington when i first moved to atlanta when i was when i was like a teenager and um he was the first guy that showed me alternate picking doesn't mean picking everything. It means your style is alternate picking player. So you may be doing the hammer-ons, pull-offs, slides, and whatnot, but um, it doesn't mean you're picking all of it. You you just if you strike the guitar that down, the next one's going to be up. So I saw that his meter was so solid, and when he this is pretty funny when I would be soloing, it would sound awesome because his rhythm was so in then when i kept rhythm and he sold it it sounded bad because my rhythm sucked compared to his because i was so i wasn't really as um firm with my timing yet because i wasn't really uh an alternate picker guy or just a picker guy so fast forward a few quite a few years later i realized actually mainly through a guy like you know like a guy like a player like jimmy herring whereas if you have a guy like Eddie, who let's say he picks like two out of five notes or two out of four notes or three out of four sometimes, you got a guy like Alan Holsworth who picks one out of eight notes maybe or one out of ten notes, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Jimmy, he seems to like his ratio, if you will, is kind of like three pick strokes per four. Like the one like the one lick that made me go, okay, that's that's the just the dopest thing ever was um, they called it, I don't know if he calls it this, but the friends that showed me called it swing picking to where you can get those wide intervals. So we're playing an A minor pentatonic scale and this is the idea. You're like, you're going and you're going pick, pick, pick. Um, so there's a, there you go. There's a first one. So you're going down, up. You're, so you've got the fifth fret and the eighth fret. Down, up, pull off. And you're going down to the G string and you're going down, up, hammer on. So what this does is it goes... So if I take the notes away, you hear this. So what you can do with that, it gives you a split second to jump. So I, I would take it. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I mean, and then and then it gets it gets it gets it gets even worse. And I get obsessed with it, and now I want to straighten it out, and I, I want to do like a non sort of triplet form, and I want to do something like. Right, that's that's sort of the like you could even I mean, these these little rhythms. I'm almost oh, it's yeah. almost like a, just like a but then if you have an idea like that, you see you're sort of outlining a minor idea. So there you go. You can there's your D minor. something like that you know that's spectacular definitely feeling that my friend yeah <laughs> kind of sounds like that michael jackson uh... <laughs> or whatever that is smooth criminal or something <laughs> i love that shit yeah now you have taken hollow body guitars and put them in the most brutal situations haven't you like I, I think so. Like, yeah, I mean, hot, the hollow. Like, do you run that guitar with sick distortions yeah, sometimes? Yeah, you know, and I, I become less and less of a distortion guy. Right, right. Um, to the point of where sometimes when I, pl when I play somebody else's rig with a lot of distortion, I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot how to mute strings. Hey, yo. Like, the, <laughs> um, yeah, the, actually, the it's funny. The relationship between Paul and I started because of a hollow body. Like, um, it's like him and David Grissom. I think David Grissom was one, was the one that was like, "You can't do that with when a hollow." You say Paul, you're talking about Paul Smith, better yes. known as Paul Reed Smith, the, the guy, the the yeah, Paul Paul Reed Smith, the guy. Like I I was um, 
I was in Doth, and um, it's actually a pretty, a pretty, um, pretty cool, um, deep sort of relationship with me and this particular guitar. I was um, wondering how to say the name of that band. Like, Doth? I figured it was Doth, like Hagen Dazs ice cream. Oh, people, right. people on the marquee would be like duck. One time somebody literally put up duck. Um, you know, part of a rite of passage for a band is to have yeah. your name on the marquee like incorrectly, like duck or uh, oh, yeah. one, one time I think it was like uh, Daff, D, like Daffy Duck, like D-A-F-F-Y. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a headlining <laughs> band like screwing with us or something, but uh, yeah. I had this, I had one, one guitar and the frets were played off of it. It was a standard 22 that I still have. I still have all my guitars and, um, and then when I, you know, with Doth, we were grinding really hard at the, at the time where the music industry was kind of going through the big change, the end of it. So there was still, labels still had tour support. You know, we were on Roadrunner um, Records and we were doing OzFest and I had this, I had two PRSs. Um, that's all I really needed. That's all I wanted. They were just playing Jane off the wall, no, no mods or anything. Um, but I was in Europe and the the standard 22 had been through like three or four different owners that were real players. So there were no frets on it. And I didn't really know. I'm like, I woke up one day and thought I was like losing my hands. I was like, I, I can't, I suck. What happened? Like, this is terrible. And then, uh, Grizz Middleton, the, the tech for, uh, I remember is unearthed. I think he just like dropkick Murphy's now. Um, he walked by, he's like, you idiot. There's no frets on that guitar. You can't see that. And I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense. So then I, I looked at him. I was like, can you fix it? I was so young and dumb. I was like, can, can you like, I don't know, do something. He's like, no, nah, man. He's like, why don't you play that hollow body? It's beautiful. Cause I just had that as my backup. I was scared of it because now, is this one of those uh, double cutaway? This is your... that any, any photo you see me with a hollow body spruce, that's the guitar. And that belonged to my best friend, Brian Hinton's dad who bought it from his shop. And that's the guy that kind of, instilled my taste in gear where he would just i come up with some crazy wizards and warriors guitar he just look at me like dude wait you come on man or i'd have a floyd rose and he just kind of look at me and go really man or I'd, I'd want some piece of mundane gear and he just look at me like don't do that you need to play this and that's where that's where i got my first shiva from uh and that's why bogner bogner shiva yeah and and that that amp and the one that came after the 20th is every single solo in my entire career is reamped through that amp so the the spruce hollow body i start playing on ozfest with it and and lo and behold it was sounded incredible uh through a dual rectifier is what i was playing it through and and people would start making comments and then but then you know there'd be smaller venues in the uk and i would i would didn't really know how to you know wield the thing yet i didn't really know how to control it yet um and you know dumb stuff like blasting it straight up with monitors like i'm going to put this monitor right underneath me and blast the guitar and go well why is it feeding back you know and then i try to put tape over the f holes like george benson did um, but he played unclean and, and then the sound guy would go, don't do that. You're, it, it sounds bad. Don't do that. So I would go, okay, and find a way to make it work. Um, you know, say it was a tube screamer in tube screamer, NS2 boss, NS2, uh, noise gate, wireless straight into a dual rectifier. That was my rig for years. And with the solos, I would just hit a boost. And that was another way that you can control it. You can get away with more if you're soloing and hit a boost. So they indeed were watching. Um, I had, uh, I was managed at the time by a guy named Scott Koenig and he, was like, hey, I know a guy named Wynn uh, at PRS. I see that you're big into PRSs. He wants you to write him, a, you know, an email. And I'm like, okay, Wynn cool. Crozak, I know Wynn. Mr. Wynn Krozak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, center stage over there, right? Or yeah, the coolest the, room over there. Oh, yeah, coolest dude, too, yeah, man. Great, yeah, great yeah. guy. And he actually, um, so I, I wrote him a, it was actually kind of a bizarre email, if I remember. I think I maybe still have it. I was just sort of like, hey, I just wanted to say hello. Like, I like the guitars. I've been playing them for years, and I don't really even want any. I just like what I got. And hi, it was a really kind of yeah. <laughs> weird email. And then um, time passed, and I, you know, and I just kind of like, okay, I wrote the email, and then a few more tours happened. Then we got Ozfest, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna call them because that would probably be pretty cool if I could like get a solid body. Because I, I didn't know what I was in store for. I knew it was summer outside. I was like, I, I need to get them to refret this guitar. And at the time, I was like, I can't afford to get this thing refretted. I'll just, I'd just rather just buy another one or something. Just scallop it. Yeah, just you just scallop it, right? So I called him, and um, and we talked briefly. And then uh, I got an email a few probably weeks later that was like, Yo, you know, we've we've been we've been watching. We've seen, you know, we've seen what you've been doing with that hollow body. Like, why don't you come up here? And of course, I'm like, Wait a minute, is this guy for real? Like, is this guy really? And then sure enough, yeah. And that's when. The first person I met was in the parking lot. It was Paul. I was on the phone, and he just walked up to me, and 
<laughs> I'm trying to think. It. He heard some. I think it was like a uh, an almonds thing, or it was, it was probably like a, a Tedeschi trucks thing. But it's like, man, he, I'm on the phone, and he just walks right up, doesn't even know me. He's like, did you hear the mix on this thing? God, he's just flipping out, and I'm like, I'm sitting here like, oh my god, this is nuts. Like this guy, literally, I'm, I just look at him like, no, I haven't heard that record, man. And he goes. Get, get, get in here and I get in his car with him and he's just showing me this record doesn't even know me and I'm standing there like what the hell is going on here and then I go in and that's immediately when I realized that as a company and I've been with them for 11 years now like it's as real as it gets like these people they, these instruments don't fall out of thin air they they bend over backwards to figure out how to make them the best and I and, I, and you know and anybody that's been yeah. to the factory you get to see that and that's that's pretty much when it started um, the relationship between me and the Paul Reed Smith guitars, you know. Very and Mike Mike guitars, yeah. Mike Scott falls into this too. My first campaign was a hollow body campaign with Mike Scott, and uh, they just threw me and him on a stage at an experience, and we're like, go for it. And he played a lot like him and that Carter Arrington guy play a lot alike with their rhythm. They got great rhythm, so I felt at home, yeah. and, and we became good friends, and we both play the hollow bodies. So it's a really cool thing. That is awesome. You know, the first time I really saw that hollow body would have been 98, 98. Isn't I was that playing, when they first came? I think so. the first ones came out in that? And I walked in the House of Blues LA. I was playing with JGB, which was mm. featured some kind of four original members of the Jerry Garcia band. Oh, yeah. And there was yeah. this other band called Jazz is Dead. Oh, man. oh boy. Doing Dead... They were on the bills, a double bill. Mm -hmm. They were sound checking, and it was Jimmy Herring. Oh, yeah. I've always heard about him, never seen him. He's playing that hollow body. He, yeah. He's panning between a Fender, like, bandmaster or something, and a Marshall half stack. Yes. Just making that thing sing. And, and like, loud, too. And using all, using all the feedback properties to make for, yeah, for yeah. Yeah, cranking it, for sustain. Yeah. So yeah, it is a magical thing that can happen with those guitars. Yeah, man. Yeah, and, it's, it's, I don't know, it, like it, you're a nut playing those things on the well, fire. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting stuff, man, because like, w you, sometimes you just really don't know why you like something. But then I, I I remember like when I when I got to the studio and everybody was just kind of like, listen to this DI, dude. Just listen to this. And we were listening to the DI of the guitar, and it just sounded different. And I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. And that made me just stick with it, you know. And try to, I think with guitar stuff in general, a lot of people don't really make it work. They try to go get more stuff. You know what I mean? Like instead of making making it work and figuring out what the deal is or trying to get closer and closer to the core of the issue that you want to solve, whether it's your, your hands or whether it's where you're putting the monitor, um, I feel like I was just always I would I just wouldn't accept that I'm like no there's got to be a way because this is too cool of an idea to not make to not let it work. Now granted, if I got a gig where it was like it wasn't my gig where I was playing for somebody else, yeah. at that I would have just that's probably why I called for the hol for the uh, the solid guitar because i'm like i can't take any risks here so that's kind of why and, and the funny thing is too is now like when i when i order guitars from from prs usually it's like i make sure the specs that i like are there then i just go you know i just go take liberties i just let them do whatever they want because they know they can put some weird orange ass wood on my fretboard and i'm gonna love it you know <laughs> now you get some kind of cool borderline surf tones like amp tones chord tones on the beginning or someone some of these yeah some of these tunes yeah do uh like something like uh well this 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 and does what amps are you actually running okay now that that's a good question because that then it's the way that that i ran them which i feel like i found my voice there too the amps that i'm running are um there's a prs archon using a weird way uh the clean channel rolled off on the tone and it sounds like a fender Rhodes. but i put it through a palmer and there if you play a palmer pdi 03 the rack mount yeah. one which is a really cool piece of yeah, analog oh that's fantastic if you you know, if you turn the, not the, I think it's the filter knob all the way up and you have it up too loud, you get these bizarre kind of transients that are sort of jumping around with the tone that are sort of enclosing the tone. And I had my, and I had my tone rolled off and I had the guitar up just because I was plugging things up and I, I kind of like to keep things dumbed down when I record. I like to do a caveman style. Yeah. So if I have to redo something, I won't, be, I won't be mad at losing anything. And next thing you know, I'm like, this sounds like a damn Fender Rhodes. Dry. So that's the intro to, um, that's the intro to Black Licorice. Mm -hmm. 
there's a Fender uh, 76 Reverb Silverface everybody hates. I think it's the dopest sound ever because I'm a huge Ennio Morricone fan. And his guitar player always has that, like I said, that, that reverb where you said it makes a stew. It kind of bleeds into the circuit and like now you get a little bit of reverb clouding your tone and makes like a plume around it. And it makes it just really epic. What kind of amp you said? Seventy six silver face Fender Twin oh, Reverb. Twin, yeah, missed the twin part. Yeah, I, I probably yeah. forgot to totally even say that. I, I just got excited. I love that amp, and it saw it was a two twelve. And my friend Aaron, um, I bought it off a guy for next to nothing back when they were cheap yeah. about five or six years ago. And uh, he's like, I'll sell it to you for X amount if you just keep, like no speakers though. So he sawed it in half, clamped it back together, so it's a head. <laughs> cool, as I say. Sometimes they're cheap, but they're always heavy. That, yeah, there's Great. that. And the Bodner 20th anniversary Shiva. Yeah. And other than that, a rectif- <laughs> because so many different situations where there, there was like a rectifier on clean on some of the parts that snuck onto the record on Shadenfraud, the song Shadenfraud. So there's some, yeah. and a microcube. There's stuff that I just straight up couldn't outdo. And I was like, yeah. screw it. Let's just keep that. Fuck it. <laughs> Anyway, a couple quick questions. Did you have fun at the amp show here in I did. Van Nuys area? I did have I did have fun. I Lonnie have Spectre's fun. spectacle, which is nut. Take everyone takes over a whole hotel and every single room is people stay in there like, What's going on over there? I'm like, eh, it's an amp show. You you'll see tomorrow morning at about eight o'clock when you hear when you hear let me give you an impression. Here's what I heard first thing, eight o'clock the other morning. <laughs> you hear that then you hear like a almost an almost whole step you hear like yeah yeah <laughs> whales or better yet you hear, you hear this too yeah <laughs> <laughs> but lo- right. but lots lots of fun though um because oh, of all the you know for, for anybody that hasn't been uh to the amp show it's literally an entire hotel with just the hotel rooms are the booths like an amp show and you just kind of walk around and just try out talk to reps and all that kind of stuff you know i like about is it is it's still edgy it's still up and coming it's still it's crazy people are cranking up amps when there's still sometimes there's still beds in the room yeah Yeah. and it's in these ordinary hotel rooms yes and uh you know it's it's one of these things it could be a lot fancier maybe in 10 years or something and right now it's a really cool time it's still just bursting out it's like breaking through the crack in the sidewalk and maybe that's up. maybe that's what's coming next because you know the NAMM show is such a the you know at least the, the yeah. show in Anaheim it's just such a just a, a gigantic yeah. thing that um, sometimes you don't get those really cool small vendors you know and, yeah. the, and the, the amp show here you're going to get this, the smaller guys that may have the cooler stuff. And I mean, I've, I think you and I have both seen yeah. guys that had two amp models that were like an up and comer. Then they took over the whole game and people were like, wow, you know? Yeah. It's amazing what people are building. And yeah. How's, how's Nashville treating you, man? It's a, Nashville's changing every day. So every time I talk to someone who's living there, I always want to get the Nashville report. The Nashville report. Okay. I got, oh, first off, you got to get down there. You got a place to stay. Oh, you know? Yeah. You definitely you. got a place to stay. I'm, I'm in Nashville. And in my little circle, you have um, actually I, I, I live um, in Mark Lewis's. Mark Lewis has a studio there. Mark Lewis is a guy that is a good friend. He's done a lot of the records I'm on, and he was from a place called Audio Hammer in Florida. He just recently kind of relocated to um, to Nashville, and he his live room is almost done, and it's it's looking really amazing. He's got it's the real deal thing, and so you got a um, you know. In the hood, you got Dusty from Between the Buried Me. He's in Nashville. You got Ryan Knight from Black Dahlia. Like a lot of people are moving there, I think, because there's sort of an infrastructure for music. And I'm a lot of them out on all these rockers moving there. Yeah. Too. Well, I mean, a lot of these guys are, are guys like us. They're, you know, they're all yeah. sort of like tone chasers. They're all like real players that just want to be around real players. And I mean, like, dude, like for example. Yeah. Uh, Let's go see Guthrie Trap on, on Thursday. Let's go to D's and see Guthrie Trap. Let's go see the Don Kelly band because whoever's playing guitar for him is going to murder it. Let's go see Brett Mason. Like, to, you nutty. know, yeah, when I moved to Nashville, like, you know, PRS is a big presence there too. You know, Daniel Donato's there. Like, all these monsters are there. And to me, I'm at a point right now that I think it's a positive thing for me to be around people that are active and that are really still caring because at the end of the day i just don't want to stop caring and the first thing that can make you stop caring is the grind and i have to say um i mean if you want to see every frat guy and sorority girl in the world on broadway you can you can hear story of a girl on broadway you can hear terrible covers there too but then you can go to roberts and hear something real i mean everything is there and you can accidentally find work there because there's the infrastructure when you say broadway you're talking about broadway in nashville yeah. folks. yeah not not like the george benson broadway the other the nashville <laughs> yeah. broadway <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there's everything there, man. It's just nutty. And, you know, how is the uh, – is it getting – more gentrified yeah like um i've had a few friends that have moved into town and they're just like man everything's bought up everything is bought up and um it is it's kind of like uh austin was a few years ago remember that like everybody's manager was moving to austin everybody's you know like there's rumored this whole label's moving to austin you know what with, with, with yeah. nashville it's jack white's now in east nashville you know that's that's been there for many years and yeah. so when you now you go to east nashville it's not just country you got your you got your your psychedelic psychedelic rock and roll you got the indie stuff you got all kinds of cool stuff but i keep getting surprised at who i run into every day there every single day at, or who lives down the street you know like like literally like the other day or was like a few months ago it's like uh, the bassist Evan Brewer is like lives down the street in the neighborhood. I'm like, what? Are you serious? Like, really? Right down there? Like, and it's it's cool. Um, it definitely is. The commerce is insane. So right. like, I I it's it's really cool because I don't really have any distract. I don't live like in the middle of Broadway, which is good because I just don't want to be in that madness. It's just it's mayhem. It's literally mayhem. If like Taylor Swift played there at the same time as like Journey, I think Journey played. And it was like, and for some reason I wound up down there and I was like, this is pretty much the most insane. This is just insane. I don't even know what the hell's going on. I don't even know where I'm going. All the streets are blocked off. Like I got to get out of here. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's a good thing though. That's, it's good. It's like Hollywood. Yeah. And movie it, yeah. premiere night or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, dude. Well, shit. Hang in there, brother. And I love it. You are just crushing it, man. Dude. Oh, yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for having me, dude. Heck yeah. I, I love, I love the show. Yeah. It's thanks. all your guests are people that are actually doing it that i want to hear stories from yeah that's well, a big that's an important big deal right there so you are doing it now maybe i'll fade out here if we're going to play one of your more brutal tracks more brutal tracks like from chimera or maybe from the maybe from the crown of phantoms album aren't yeah, you all over see. that yeah yeah that's that's the record that's the chimera record let's see let's do um kings of the shadow world let's do that one there's a cool solo on that one sweet all right safe travels man all right thanks for having me dude yeah.